want to add uh, this morning my uh, invitation for that 8 o'clock prayer meeting as well and maybe add to it that uh, we also uh, will be praying this evening. It, normally we pray on the first Sunday evenings of the month, but because of the 4th of July weekend, we moved it to uh, tonight. So we do have our uh, corporate prayer meeting tonight too, and so uh, you can join us for that. And We would love to have you there and Unite our hearts and minds together as we beseech God to do something unexplainable, which is convert dead, lost sinners to faith in Christ. Let me, uh, let me just ask you a question this morning. How many of you have ever heard of the Peter Principle? Hmm? The Peter Principle, that's good. Well, the Peter Principle, this is a, you may not know this much of it, you may know the at least heard of it, but the Peter Principle was first introduced by Dr. Lawrence Peter in a humoristic book of the same title describing the pitfalls of bureaucratic organizations. And the original Peter Principle is as follows, quote, in a hierarchical structured administration, people tend to be promoted up to their level of incompetence. Okay, that's the Peter Principle. And it is based upon uh, observation of Dr. Lawrence, Peter, of uh, various organizations. And that is that new employees tend to start in the bottom rungs of those organizations. And as they prove themselves competent, they begin to get promoted up through the ranks. And this process of climbing through the hierarchy of the organization can go on indefinitely until the uh, employee reaches a position where they are no longer competent and thus no longer eligible for promotion. That's how it works. And that's where the process stops. It, it uh, kind of tops out there. But what that creates is in these kinds of bureaucratic organizations that all the higher levels of the bureaucracy are filled by incompetent people. Okay? And uh, we've all had our share of running into that, haven't we? And it's really interesting because these people uh, were good at something at one point in time. They were very good at doing something. That's how they got promoted in the first place. The problem is, is they just uh, have been promoted one level above their competence. The Peter Principle. Well, churches are not immune to these kinds of organizational problems either. Doctors, lawyers, accountants, they all have to pass strenuous examinations before they are authorized to practice their craft. But in many, many churches, all it takes to enter into leadership is the ability to fog a mirror. Yeah, I know. It has to settle in on a few of you just exactly what I've said. That's a shame, isn't it? That's a shame that it's that way. It should not be. It should not be. Two weeks ago, we explored Paul's strenuous qualifications for deacons. Prior to that, we looked at what are the requirements for elders. By the way, you can open your Bibles to a first Timothy chapter 3 this morning, page 1187. 
So we've spent some time, I think five weeks altogether, exploring these strenuous qualifications that the Apostle Paul gives here for church leadership, the leaders of the leadership of elders and deacons. And so what I want to do this morning is look at verse 10 with you. We skipped over it in our exposition of this chapter earlier, doing so intentionally because I wanted to come back and just focus in, zoom in on this one particular verse. Because you see, beloved, if, if, if there is a requirement for a qualification, then that demands examination. It just mandates it. It necessitates it. If there are really qualifications that, that have to be met, then somebody has got to examine whether a person meets them or not. To say that you, you, know, you uphold the inerrancy of the Word of God is authoritative in our lives, the life of the church, and Paul lays out some very specific, strenuous qualifications for the leadership of the church, and then to ignore them in the process of leadership selection is at best hypocrisy. And so it's a serious deal. Qualification demands examination. And so what I want to do this morning as we look at verse 10 in this text is I want to explain Paul's mandate for and FBC's method of examining prospective leadership. Paul's mandate for examination, FBC's method of examination, how do we apply the mandate of prospective leadership so that we can have full confidence in the leadership of this fellowship? Okay, that's the task. So let's first look at the biblical mandate to examine. Verse 10. And let these also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Let these first or let these also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now, as we begin to pick this apart a little bit, there are some grammatical points we want to make because they help to explain what he's talking about these also he says verse 10 do you see that kai hutoi in the greek and it's it's a connecting particle and it's important to the to the understanding of what paul is trying to communicate here the proper interpretation of this verse paul is talking about more than just the examination of deacons in this text there is a mandate here to examine both elders and deacons. And the way that this verse is put together, these connecting particles help us to see that. There is a very, very strong, I'll admit it's only implication, but I think it's a very strong implication that the test here is beyond just deacons, but extends to elders also. And so I think we could translate the verse in a, in a looser paraphrase as something like this. And let these deacons parentheses, also, parentheses, like the elders, first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now, I've told you over and over again, this, you know, this is, a, is a tight chronology that's running through here. Chapter division, verse divisions, these are later additions to the text. This was meant to be read straight through. 
And so as a reader would 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 flow through this straight through as it would be read aloud to a congregation, it would be very natural and logical for them to see the close connections that are going on between elders and deacons, the requirements that parallel each other, overlap each other and the this mandate for testing here in verse 10. This is an imperative that Paul gives to us here in verse 10. These also let these also first be tested. It is a it is a present passive imperative. It it is something that is not negotiable. It is a requirement. The idea of testing church leadership is not optional. It is an apostolic mandate to the church. It's not like, well, it's probably a pretty good idea for you to test your leadership first and see if they meet certain qualifications. Paul is saying you must. You must test them. You must test them. Dokimadzo is the Greek word for test here. It means to test or to examine, to, to prove or to discover, to demonstrate. Those would be all possible translations of that verb. It carries with it the idea of, of that the person who's being tested or the thing being tested is expected to pass the test. It's not a test in order to flunk them. It's a test to prove that what you think you see is indeed true. To demonstrate, to discover the truthfulness of that which you think you've observed. In secular Greek, dokimadzo is, is used in relation to testing a person's credentials for public office. It's also used throughout the New Testament in a number of ways. I'll just give you a few to help you get a flavor for what Paul is saying here. Luke 14.19, it's talking about testing oxen. Testing oxen. You expect the oxen to be able to perform, but you want to test it to be sure. Romans 2.18, it's used to recognize what is essential. So it has the idea of recognition of a, something that's essential or truthful. 1 Corinthians 3.13 to test the quality of a man's work. Test the quality of his work. 1 Corinthians 11.28 it's used of examining our own hearts. 2 Corinthians 13.5 to examine our belief in comparison to our conduct. But again, in all of these, the idea is that the person or thing being tested will pass. I think that's an important point to understand. You're not looking to fail, you're looking to pass. You're looking to prove out that which is what you believe to be true. So let these, verse 10, also first be dokimadzo, be tested, be examined, be demonstrated, be proved, be discovered. And then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Again, we talked when we were examining the section earlier on deacons, this idea of, of beyond reproach is an umbrella term here. Umbrella term. If they pass the test, if they prove out that what you think is true of them, and with regard to this big umbrella term that, that Paul uh, gives us specifics on in and around this verse, then they are ready to enter into that significant position of leadership in the church. They're ready to carry out the task of a deacon or an elder. As we said, the requirements here are not optional. It is a mandate that they be tested. Right? First, 
You see the first clause there? Then let these also first be tested. Then let them serve. Do you see that? So it's a first then idea. It must be done. But it's fascinating to note, beloved, as you look at this, that the exact method and means of the testing is not spelled out for us. Do you see that? We're told you have to be tested. It's an absolute mandate. It is not an option that there has to be a test. But what is not given to us is, the, is necessarily the specifics of the test or the, or the means by which the test. So what is the process by which elders and deacons are to be dokimadzo, to be examined? How is it done? Well, this enters us into a really, a, I think, a fascinating broad observation of the New Testament as a whole, and that is that the New Testament is, is, is light on detail and big on principle. Light on details, big on principle. It doesn't speak a lot about process and procedure. It talks about the principles, but it doesn't give you a lot of the procedures, a lot of the process. I mean, this is clearly illustrated when we get to the issue of worship, right? The New Testament talks a lot about the need to worship the living God, but it doesn't give a lot of detail about exactly how you're supposed to go about doing that. Certainly in comparison to the Old Covenant. There is no New Testament equivalent of the book of Leviticus, right? Which got down to the minute details of including how the clothing was to be woven. There is no New Testament equivalent of such things because the New Testament is written for the church when the church is a, is a worldwide community of believers that can go anywhere at any time and adapt into any culture to bring them face to face with the living God. And so with regard to the testing of potential leadership, the mandate to do it is absolutely clear. But what is left out for us is exactly how to go about doing it. And that kind of runs into a problem with most of us because most of, our lives, most of us like policies and procedures. We're sort of big on the policy procedure thing. You know, give me the checklist. That's what I'm looking for, right? Bottom line. And then, uh, then I'll start checking them off and then I'll know whether I'm doing it right or wrong. Okay, big on checklists. Unfortunately for many, many churches, I would say, is that there's so much attention given to the policy and procedure, there's not enough thought given to, to the re, very qualifications that are, that are spelled out here that has, are supposed to be tested. So churches have very elaborate you know, constitutions that spell out on a certain day of the month, in the year, you do this and then you do that. And, and then we use Robert's Rules of Order and we do this and we do that. And everybody's got the procedure down, but people don't spend much time at all looking at the basic qualifications that are required to be tested. Being on policy and procedure kind of light on the underlying characteristics. Notice also, looking at the verse... Paul does not specify who is to carry out the test. These are just, you know, kind of general observations. There's this mandate to test, but Paul doesn't say exactly who's supposed to do it. Now, contextually, looking back to, uh, to verse 1 in this chapter, right? It talks about a trustworthy statement that a man aspires to the office of overseer. 
So certainly inherent in the title, overseer, elder, is this concept of, of oversight and management of the body. And so I think it's reasonable to assume that the elders are somehow intimately involved in this process. Giving direction to it. Giving, giving a structure to however the policy procedure is put together to fill out the mandate test. Last week we looked at Acts 6, verses 1-6, through 6, right? We talked about what do deacons do. We noted there that the apostles gave oversight to the process of even selecting the original seven. We also noted last time that we are, we are convinced that the apostles stand in as prototypical elders in that early setting and thus the seven stand in as prototypical deacons. Looking over here in, uh, in 2 Timothy, go ahead and turn there to the right. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul gives a mandate here to Timothy. It says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There is this mandate to train leadership. And again, if elders are involved in the general oversight of the church, as the as their very name implies, I think they're certainly involved in that process too. So I think it's, it's, it's safe to say that the elders have to be intimately involved in, in carrying out the mandate to test potential leadership. But I don't think it ends there. I don't think it ends there. This letter was written to Timothy, right? Left by Paul, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. But also this letter was to be read to the church. It was to be read in the congregation. And not just the church at Ephesus, of course, right? This is the Word of God. This is Scripture. Look down at verse 15, by the way. Just be reminding yourself of this. 14.15, Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We believe that these pastoral epistles are not just uh, situation-specific Timothy and Ephesus in the first century, but they are given to the church at large through the ages. And so the instructions here to... The mandate to test leadership is given to all of us. There's got to be church involvement. There's got to be involvement of the body in the examination and testing of potential leadership. Elders are involved in the process. I think elders give direction to the process. But it doesn't rest with them alone. There is congregational involvement. Congregational involvement. Beloved, we need leaders who obviously fit the characteristics. It must be obvious that they fit these characteristics. Now, what do we base the testing upon? What is the basis of the testing? Is it stuff we just make up? Each church comes up with its own list of qualifications for leadership. And then we examine against that. Of course not. It's against the code 
that has been given here in and around verse 10. What are prospective elders and deacons to be tested about? They are to be tested with regard to the qualifications that the Apostle Paul lays out that they must have. So we're driven again right back into this text. I said the letter is to be read aloud. That means that the whole congregation, the whole fellowship needs to be aware of what are the qualifications of their leaders. What is it that, that God requires of a leader? Everyone in the congregation should know. What are the qualifications of elders? So when I ask you that question, what, what, what is the qualification of an elder? You ought to be able to open your Bible and go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, and you ought to be able to list them right off. Everybody should be able to do that. What are the qualifications of deacons? Here they are. Verses 8 and following. And so everybody knows what the qualifications are, and everybody needs to be involved in, in determining to one degree or another whether this person meets these qualifications. I think there's an obligation, I go that far, to say there is a congregational obligation to make sure their leaders meet the requirements that the apostle lays out. We can't arbitrarily delete things that we don't like or add things that we think ought to be there that aren't. Because it's not our church, isn't that true? Whose church is it? It's God's church. It is God's church, and God has told us exactly what a leader must be like. And then He has delegated to us the responsibility to see whether the leaders are indeed like what He says they must be. Now, that kind of takes the examination of prospective leaders out of the popularity contest realm. There's nothing here about the strong natural leader. There's nothing here about the successful businessman. There's nothing here about the, the smooth-talking salesman or whatever other category you want to throw in there. There are very specific requirements here. And none of them, by the way, are vocational-specific. Do you notice that? It doesn't matter what a man does to put bread on the table. That doesn't make him qualified or disqualify him from leadership. So exactly what is supposed to be examined? Well, first off is doctrinal belief. He has to be able to teach, right? And over in Titus 1, verse 9, it talks about able to, to um, respond to, to false teachers, to refute false teaching. That means that a man's doctrinal beliefs have to be examined. What does he believe? Is he orthodox in what he believes? What does a man believe about the inspiration and inerrancy of the Scriptures? needs to be examined. Can he explain the doctrine of the Trinity? What does he believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ? Who is the Holy Spirit? What is his role? What is man's problem and how can he be made right with God? Who or what is the church and what is its mission? What do you believe about last things? These are, these are areas of doctrinal examination that have to be carried out. 
A man's knowledge of the Scripture needs to be examined. Does he have the ability, is he a workman in the Word such that he is able to refute those who contradict, right? Titus 1.9. Is he a man of the Word? Does he know what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage? Does he know what the Gospel really is? Can he articulate it? Does he know what the Bible teaches about male and female roles? How a believer can overcome a particular sin in their life? Is he, is he a workman in the Word? Is he competent? Examine a man with regard to his personal giftedness. Is he a teacher? What about his ministry interests? How about his family unity, his moral integrity, even his time commitments? Alexander Strzok in his book on biblical elders says the following, I quote, The proper examination of deacons and elders is precisely where many churches fail. The examination process takes time and effort. And many churches are too busy with other matters to make that effort. Close quote. I think he's right on the money. There's an annual meeting, right? Driven by a calendar. Everybody wakes up on one day and goes, oh man, the annual meeting's going to be here in three weeks. We need new deacons. Get the mirror. Right? How many churches have you been part of? Let's take a nomination from the floor on the day of the meeting. I nominate old Hank over there. And Hank said, oh, no, not me. Yeah, I want you, Hank. Everybody in favor, say aye. Aye, F we go. Hank's now deacon of the church. I'm being a little facetious, but not much. Not much. Go back at the text, verse 10. Question for you. Why does Paul put the injunction here? Why does he include it here in verse 10? Let me give you just a couple of suggestions to tie this together for you. It's possible that um, because the deacons don't have a, a teaching mandate, right? Like elders, verse 2, able to teach. That Paul was concerned that the, that the, the deacons might be undervalued within the church. And so he inserts it here to sort of float it up to the top and say, listen, it's important you examine deacons too. So he inserts it here. Also, I think just sort of stylistically, it fits well here. I mean, it could be repeated twice. I mean, he could give the, the, the requirements for elders, verses 1 through 7, and then the mandate to examine them. And then he could give the requirements for deacons and then the mandate to examine them. He could do it that way, but that's sort of pedantic. It's, it's just stylistically, it fits kind of well here. I mean, after all, if, if, if you're not convinced textually there's a mandate to examine elders here, there certainly is when you turn over to chapter 5. Of this same epistle. Verses 22 to 25. Right? The context begins in verse 17. It's talking about elders. Verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. And a little parenthetical there about Timothy's uh, uh, stomach problems. Verse 24. The sins of some men are quite evident. 
going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after them. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. And so there he is clearly saying that you need to examine elders. I think he's saying it here in chapter 3 as well. By the way, you add in that additional wisdom of chapter 5, it tells you that time is an important component of the examination process, right? Time is an important thing. We need to observe a man for a period of time because some guys come on looking all shiny and polished and they're dragging a whole load of garbage behind them. Right? So you want to make sure what you got. Just because the, the guy knows his Bible from one end to the other does not make him elder qualified. Does not make him deacon qualified. By the, love, by the way, uh, beloved, <clears throat> Satan knows the Bible front and back. Right? Bible knowledge alone does not qualify anyone for leadership in the church of God. They need to be examined. They need to be tested. Verse 10, chapter 3. This brings another uh, point up. I guess kind of hammering on these little hobby horses this morning, but that's okay. Most churches have a separate evaluation process or examination process, right? The professional elders get one level of examination and the non-professional, if I can say it that way, or those that, that are not making their living by the gospel get another level of examination. I don't think it ought to be that way. I just say it like that. I don't think it ought to be that way. I think the rigorous standards need to be applied evenly. Just something for you to think on. Clearly, we have a biblical mandate to examine verse 10. We clearly have a biblical mandate to examine. So how do we apply it? Second point in your outline, right? FBC's method of examination. How do we apply this text today in this fellowship? I want to take the time to do this because I know there are many of you that are not exactly sure where leadership comes from. You think it maybe just sort of bubbles up out of the ground somehow. Well, I can assure you the Holy Spirit does not speak to us and say, set apart for me and then list their names, okay? So we don't have that advantage. There's a seven-step process around here. Let me walk you through it. It begins with the elders identifying potential leadership candidates. They identify potential leadership candidates based on their present ministry involvement, their apparent spiritual maturity, and the quality of their leadership in the home as it has been observed over a period of time. So it begins there. With a whiteboard and a whole lot of names. The elders also select what's called a nominating committee. A nominating committee. This is in keeping with our Constitution. This nominating committee is composed of representatives from the elder board, from the deacons, from women's ministries, and some what they call members at large. Not large members, but members at large. Right? Why? So there will be congregational involvement. 
So there will be congregational involvement. Then one or more of the elders will meet with the prospective candidates who have been identified earlier. And they will discuss with them Foothill's leadership training program. They will provide the candidate with a written job description. And they will hand them a 23-question questionnaire for them to take home and fill out that is invasive and prized in all kinds of areas of their lives. The candidate and their wife will go home with this information and they will pray and ask the Lord for direction and leadership and confirmation of whether they want to enter into the application process. If they do, they will fill out the 23-question questionnaire. And by the way, it's the same questionnaire that we use to hire outside staff people. You don't get a break, you know, because you're part of the family. And it has questions like these. I'll just give you a few. This is just a sample. For example, describe your relationship with God and your time with Him in word and prayer. Question, how do you handle conflict and correction from a peer, superior, subordinate? Give examples. Question, what are some of the books you have read recently? Question, do you have time to enter into this training program? What changes will you make in your present schedule to accommodate the training program? Question, are you in full agreement with the FBC doctrinal statement and can you explain and defend it? If not, please explain. Question, if at the end of the training program you were not appointed to be an elder or a deacon, what would your response be? Question. Please list three references which are not related to you and one of which is your supervisor at work. All right, look at the text again. Where it says that a, that a man must, in verse 7, must have a good reputation with those what? Outside the church. So we check references. We actually like call the guy's boss up. And say, what kind of an employee is this? We describe the ministry that he's applying for and, and the job description and say, do you think he would be a good fit for this? And by the way, they, they, uh, everybody gives you their sweet spots, right? Their best references. So by the way, do you know anybody else who might know them that we could call? I have to tell you too, by the way, I think it's, a, it's one of the greatest parts of the whole interview process is to receive back the references. Gentlemen, your references have been outstanding. They've been exemplary. You are outside the church what you appear to be inside the church. You have been tested, examined, proved to be truly what we thought you were. That's encouraging. What you see is what you get. Well, after completing that application process and, of course, submitting it and having the references checked, we bring husband and wife in for the examination where they will sit with the nominating committee and we will question them through the questions, the responses on their questionnaire and any other areas that need to be probed. We, we interview them together and then we send the husband out of the room and we interview the wife separately. And the reason we do that is because a number of years ago, many years ago, under a different way of doing things, there was a man once who was nominated to be a deacon. And we, on the night of the annual meeting when he was to be uh, affirmed into the office of, 
of deacon, his wife came to me and said, oh, I never knew my husband was even going to be a deacon. And at that moment in time, I knew we were in trouble. So we send the husband out of the room. We talk to the wife by herself. Then we send the wife out of the room. We talk to the husband. And we try to catch him in a lot. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> actually, we ask questions like, you know, uh, what's your wife's birthday? What's your you know, favorite place to go to dinner? And, you know, and we match him. No, we don't do that. Well, sometimes we do that, actually. But it's the whole idea is to get to know them, to make sure of, of what you think you see is what really is there. Well, after that interview process, the elders and deacons enter into a one to two year training program. One to two year elder deacon training program. That training program, in that training program, they are assigned a mentor. And there is a series of assignments that they must go through where they are they will receive feedback on their on their ministry skills and, and coaching on improvement. There are two mandated formal evaluations per year, fall and spring. So there's guaranteed sit-down, face-to-face time to see how I'm doing. They're expected to attend the elder and deacon meetings and participate in the process. Because we want to know how do they do in a, in a room where consensus decision-making is the, is the flavor of the church. We don't run by majority rule. We run by unanimity. The elders don't make a decision unless it is unanimous. And if there is a dissenting vote, then it is tabled until there can be unanimity. And so if you've got a person who can't work in that environment who always has to win, you want to know that on the front side. Because the only way you'll ever achieve unanimity is people need to be able to figure out the difference between preferences and those that are, that are principal and cannot be flexed on. So it's a testing period. It's an observation time. How do they process? What level of wisdom do they show? Are they, are they team players? How do they handle conflict? What happens when it doesn't go their way? These are all things that you just don't know until you see it happen. There's a wall out there in the foyer that it's called a leadership wall. Serving Christ by serving you, it says on the top of that wall. There are pictures there, right? There are pictures of the elders, pictures of the deacons, and there's a blank spot where it says leaders in training. The reason there's a blank spot is it's because there's been a number of guys that have just gone through this process. And their names will now be, or faces and pictures will be now be up on that wall because as a congregation, you need to know who they are too. Because you are involved in this process. You have been involved by representation in the, in the interviewing process. You need to be involved in the overall evaluation during the next one to two years. Because you see, what will happen is, at the end of that training period, provided that the, 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 uh, the elders and the deacons believe that this individual is ready, and by the way, you can get out of the training program at any time. You can say, this is not what I thought it was. I, I don't have the time. I don't have the capacity. This is above me. I'm, I'm stepping back. And there is no shame in such things. You can also be dropped. If it's evident to all that it's just not a good fit. 
So at the end of this period of time, beloved, we know who these men are. You've had opportunity to observe them. So when it comes to an annual meeting and you are asked to affirm them into a position of elder or leader, a significant responsibility in the congregation, you should know who they are and you should know whether they're ready or not. Shouldn't be a surprise. Take the time to become familiar with who these men are. Pray for these men. These guys are taking on a load. For some, there include there's additional academic requirements too along the way to strengthen some areas. Pray for them. Pray for their wives and their children for the sacrifice that they are making so that these men could become leaders among us. Check out that leadership wall. Get to know your leaders. Process is not perfect. This is a man-made process. It's not perfect. It's subject to change. It's subject to improvement. If we can think of ways for it to be improved, we want to know them. If you'll permit me, I, I've, as I've thought about this whole process, and you know, annually we have a, a meeting, right? Isn't that true? Fourth Sunday of the month of August, 27th this year, Ron, isn't that right? This is my advertisement. Don't miss that meeting. Don't miss the annual business meeting. There is some really exciting stuff. The very implementation of the 10-year strategic ministry plan is going to begin to be rolled out in specifics. We want you to understand it. We want you to embrace it. We want you to be part of it. We want you to have, give you opportunity to express yourself with regard to it. So don't miss that meeting on the 27th. But you know, as I think about that annual meeting, in that annual meeting, we are constitutionally required to, to annually reaffirm elders and deacons. Right? We do that. We annually reaffirm them. The thing that... that um, and we do that by secret ballot. And the thing that, that kind of always catches in my mind as we do that is is inevitably we get you know a handful of no votes. We get a handful of no votes. And that troubles me. That has always troubled me. And what troubles me about it is, what if the person who is voting no knows something about this man that we don't know that is disqualifying them to be an elder? What if they know something that we don't know? And they vote no. But we don't know about it, and so everybody else votes yes, and, and onward we go. That's, that bothers me. That concerns me. A simple no vote just leaves everybody wondering. By the way, it leaves the men wondering too. When they get some no votes. So here's a, here's a thought. I'll just throw this out. I'm just kind of broadcasting this out. What if we were to provide a space on the annual ballot where it's not just yes or no, but then, then there's a space where we say, if no, please include a, the biblical justification for no. What is it about the necessary qualifications as given in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, to 8-13 to, to, uh, that disqualifies this man? 
What is it that you know about Him that we don't know? Please, help us. Give us the biblical reason. If a biblical reason is not supplied, then I guess we could safely assume they just don't like the way they part their hair. Right? And if they do supply a biblical reason, it would need to be investigated. It would need to be examined and found out whether it is true. Whether it is indeed disqualifies them. Just a thought. Just a thought. Beloved, the whole congregation has a part in this. You have a part in the process of making sure that we do live. That we do live in conformity to the Word of God. We say that it is God's church. Amen? And that God rules His church through the Word. Amen? I just want to facilitate that as best we can. Think on these things. Kind of an interesting sermon to give. Right? I mean, some exposition of verse 10, this explanation of policies and procedures, but I think it's helpful. I think it's needful. But I want to in the few minutes that remain to me, I want to kind of switch gears with you. Don't tune me out. Okay? I'm changing channels, but hang in there. It's just a commercial anyway. You don't want to watch that. We're going to something else. I just want to talk to you about the gospel. Take your bulletin out. Songs, hymns, whatever you want to call them, spiritual songs, in our culture are inherently difficult to convey the gospel through. Part of it just has to do with the idea that we, like everything, has to rhyme, right? In the process of rhyming, you can, you can carve, out a, carve off a lot of meaning. A lot of meat has to be, you know, sort of trimmed off the edges, but the lyrics of this song are particularly profound. And speak about what it means to be reconciled to your Creator through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, it says it begins and it says, Before the throne of God above, that is the Sovereign One, Creator, Sustainer of the universe. Before that throne, I have something to plea. That is, I've, I've got something to come before Him with and it's not me. I have someone else, a, a great high priest, who stands before the throne of God above and pleads for me. He makes my case before my Creator. And I am so closely identified with him that it says, My name is graven on his hands. I am that closely identified with this great high priest. 
And as long as this high priest lives, it says, I cannot be told to depart from before my Creator. He will not send me away. Regardless of my level of obedience, regardless of my level of love for Him, His level of love for me is so high that I can never be told to depart from my presence or His presence. Even when Satan comes to me and says, you bum, call yourself a Christian. You don't live like a Christian. Look at what you just did. Look what you just thought. Look how you constantly are falling on your face, failing. Say you love God. You don't love God. If you love God, you wouldn't do that. The tempter. The slanderer continues to try to make me despair. He reminds me how guilty I really am. But in that moment of despair, it says, I look up and I see that great high priest who made an end to all my sin. That is, that on Calvary's cross, when, when Jesus Christ died, all of the sin and all of the guilt passed present and future of His people was poured out on Him and was extinguished. To tell us that it is finished, He said. That is, that there is nothing left to be done. All the guilt is gone. We are guiltless before our Creator. And that drives us into the paradox of the Gospel, beloved. How is a guilty one made guilt-free before His Creator? How can I, who fall and sin continually, be made right with God? How can that be? I mean, I know when I look into my own heart, I don't find it there. I need another person's righteousness. I need a substitute. I need someone to stand in for me. Someone to be the righteousness that I am not and to take all of my guilt to themselves. I need a sinless Savior to die for me so that my sinful soul can be counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. He looks on Him and He declares me free. That is the Gospel. That is what has been done for us. And by faith in that sinless one, personal embrace of that sinless one, by an understanding and a belief that He died for me. Not for the world in some general sense, but for me. And that I am trusting in nothing else but Him. Because I have nothing else to offer. What am I going to give to my Creator? What can a man give in exchange for his own soul? Behold Him there. The risen Lamb. My 
perfect, spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and grace. When I embrace Him by faith, I become one with Him. The Scripture says I cannot die. My soul has been purchased with His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God. If you have never personally embraced this Savior, you must do so. You must do so. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's nothing else you can give. God will accept nothing else. He will take only the sacrifice of His perfect Son. You don't need to Write anything down on a card. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to come forward in any public displays. But what you do need to do is right where you're sitting. Is call out to God. And to be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe Jesus Christ died for me. I believe He rose from the dead on the third day and He lives forevermore and He resides before the throne of God to plead on my behalf. The Bible says if you will call out to Him in faith, He will hear you in all of your guilt, all of your sin, all of the crud of your life is extinguished in a moment. You become forever a child of God. Beloved, that's good news. A number of us are going out this afternoon, middle of the afternoon, right in the heat of the day, to knock on the doors of this community to tell them that they can be saved. They can be made right with God. They can be reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you have never embraced Christ by faith, don't leave today without doing so. Let me pray.